This is Essie Featured. This is the power of sports. Welcome to this SC Featured podcast, the making of a major. In this episode, Sports Center anchor Matt Berry and ESPN golf analyst Michael Collins tell the story of Augusta National's birth and how Bobby Jones's vision set up the tournament we have today. Augusta at that point was the winter capital of North America. Jones and Roberts had grand, spectacular plans. You gotta remember, they tried to build this at the height of the depression. There were gonna be two golf courses. One of the golf courses was going to be specifically for women. There was no money. When it started out, it was a sort of a let's put on a show kind of amateur neighborhood production. He got this golf course done in 76 working days. Jones's ambition had been to have a U.S. Open because it would put the course on the map. Alongside ESPN.com golf analyst Michael Collins, also affectionately known here at ESPN, the caddy. Thank you. I am Sports Center anchor Matt Berry. Today, Michael Collins, we are going to look at the Augusta National Golf Club. And how it became. Side of the Masters. Mm. I love asking people about a certain point in their life and say, do you remember when? So I would like to know, what was your reaction and do you remember when you first stepped foot on the grounds of Augusta National Golf Club? Absolutely. I actually had butterflies walking through the gate. But I'll be honest with you, my first time at Augusta was the first year that I was working for ESPN. Which was? Five years ago. Okay. 2012 for the math majors. 2012 for the math majors. And and I didn't want to go because the Masters is the one golf tournament that I never got to put the jumpsuit on in caddy. Mm. And I only ever wanted to see Augusta wearing that jumpsuit. But I was never fortunate enough to caddy for someone who had made it. So when I got hired by ESPN, low man on the totem pole, yeah. when they say you're going to Augusta, you don't get to say no. And give me the first word that comes to mind when you walk through those gates. Speechless. Yeah. That's the first word. You walk in there and you're speechless because you understand what hallowed ground it is you're stepping on and walking through. And you're also speechless because of the vibe and respect and feeling that everyone else is showing walking around that property. And I want to give the listener a quick backstory for those when he was talking about putting on the jumpsuit. Michael caddied on tour for a better part of a decade. You'd mentioned that you weren't going to be able to do that at the Masters. You didn't want to go as a civilian, but you came as, a, as an employee. <laughs> My uh, first experience came in 2005. I was a local sportscaster at the CBS affiliate in Columbia, South Carolina, WLTX. And I, it was an hour away, door-to-door hour away. And so we would cover the Masters every year. And I grew up loving the Masters, grew up loving golf. And I remember walking in there for the practice rounds. It was on a Tuesday. We were doing a story on a local golfer. You may have heard of him. His name is Dustin Johnson. <laughs> uh, he was from Dutch Fork High School in the greater Columbia area. And I remember walking through those gates. Because you see it on TV. So you've right. got this, this, what you think it looks like. Right. Walks through the gates. And I stood there. And I looked around. And I flat out said, this isn't real. Yeah, that's the, as you walk around that place. The other thing is, when you first walk on the property, you're not necessarily right on the golf course. You can see the driving range. Then when you walk out 
to where the golf course is, my breath was taken away because I looked up and didn't it's, realize, wait a minute, what is this huge hill yes. that's here? I don't understand. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Because it's so hilly. TV doesn't do it just Not even a little bit. I mean, it's an amazing place. So everyone listening to this podcast, of which we're going to get into the history of Augusta National Golf Club, I want you to take in your mind what you think Augusta National looks like and what you see of it today. And I want to get to 1.21 gigawatts. <laughs> I want to get in the DeLorean, hit the flux capacitor, and go back to the 1800s of Augusta, Georgia, which is roughly just a two-hour drive east of Atlanta. Now, back then, Michael, Augusta was just a rolling farmland. Right? If you've been there, you know the Savannah River flows through the town, right. which made it perfect for growing crops. Now, in this episode, you're going to hear a lot from David Owen. He is the author of Making of the Masters. From 1996 to 1999, this author, David Owen, got unprecedented access to Augusta National Golf Club, something that most people— No one other than him. Yeah, no most one, people, no one. No one other than him got the access that he got to do this. So believe me when we tell you, you're going to learn— just as much as we learned doing this research. Listen to the stories. Here's David Owen on how it all got started. In the mid-1800s, a man named Dennis Redman bought the property, and he was a kind of a utopian agriculturalist. He was a journalist who worked for a magazine called The Southern Cultivator. One of the ideas that he worked on was replacing cotton as the mainstay of the southern agricultural economy. And he and the magazine had this idea that growing fruit trees could be an economic replacement for cotton. So they're looking for an economic replacement for cotton. What are we going to do? He's got to to name it. Yeah. He has to name the land that he just bought, Redmond. Something really original, something that's just going to jump out at you. Well, you know there's fruit trees. And they're they're on a lot of land. But guess what he named it? Fruitland. It was the original name back in the 1800s. So even though he wasn't original with the name, Dennis Redman, of course, buys the property, starts growing fruit trees, plants, but he also decides not only is he going to grow all this stuff on the property, he's going to live there too. Here's David Owen. He built a uh, a very innovative house for himself um, that was he viewed as sort of the model for a, the ideal farmhouse. And it was made of a material that um, had never been used in residential construction in the South before, concrete. It has walls that are a foot and a half thick, and it's sort of square and squat. The ground floor was really kind of a basement. The real living rooms of the house were upstairs, and it was surrounded by a deep porch. In 1858, Redmond sold the property to a Belgian family called the Berkmans. They were horticulturists. Uh, They had recently moved to Augusta from New Jersey, and they had bought an adjacent property, which they called Paramount. It was also a fruit nursery. And the Berkmans combined Fruitland and Paramount. They created the largest commercial nursery in the South, and it had quite a history. The Berkmans has published a catalog beginning in the 1850s, and they offered an extraordinary range of, of plants, more than 1,300 varieties of pears, 900 varieties of apples, 300 varieties of grapes, and 100 varieties of azaleas. All right, so family business, booming. Everything, privet hedges, they're shipping fruit trees all over the place. Everything is going fantastic, right? Well, yeah, for a time they were, Michael. But what tends to happen with a lot of family businesses, like a lot of them, this thing went south. Prosper Berkmans, he was the head of the family, actually bought the property. He passed away. Here's Stan Birdie. He's an Augusta historian 
talking about what happened after Prosper passed away. When he died in 1910, Prosper had two sons, and the sons ran that uh, operation for a couple years, but there was a family falling out, and and, uh, Prosper's widow, who also lived in the house and you know, had interest in the properties along with the sons, couldn't see eye to eye on what was going to go forward with that land. And eventually the business went in decline. Go figure. Everything's going fantastic. And then once a guy named, of course, his name's Prosper. Once he passes away and his sons can't keep everything up, the business goes into decline. And by 1918, that Berkman's nursery, yep. it's defunct, and the land just sits there. It's abandoned. Imagine that. Big plot of land not being used. But as we move out of 1918 and into the early 20s, the town of Augusta, separate from where this land is, right. is actually starting to thrive. Here again is Birdie. Augusta at that point was the winter capital of North America. We had transitioned into a town of the rich and famous, the presidents, the powerful, of uh, Ty Cobb, of minor league baseball. The film industry was located here. And all the big families, uh, the Roosevelts, President Taft, and uh, Woodrow Wilson had grown up downtown. I mean, this was the place to be in America at that point. Michael, of all the things that, you know, at the, at the outset of the podcast, we had talked about that we were going to learn a lot of things and mm-hmm. how Augusta National Golf Club came about. For me, close to tops of that list was when I heard the story about how Augusta, Georgia was attracting superstars and Hollywood. And it was a winter haven and people were coming from New York City. I had no idea that Augusta, Georgia was the it place in the 20s. Well, that's the, we've been to Augusta, Georgia. And there's been plenty of people that I'm sure have gone by it or through it. Or when you see pictures or video at Augusta now, that is not a place where you think to yourself, ooh, this place is booming. This now, is the spot. in fairness, I do stay in downtown Augusta when I'm covering the Masters for ESPN. And there is a nice little historical area down there where you could, you could see it. How big is it, though? Not big. That's what I mean. When you say, hey, the place was booming, I understand it was the Roaring Twenties, but booming come on i didn't see it unless everybody i don't think there was a waffle house there no but that waffle house is good now it's the best i mean if the berkmans may have had that waffle house back then Ooh. who knows what would have happened so it's the mid-1920s everyone talking about how great august is it's booming people love it so after berkman's nursery closed in 1918 this this property sat there and just no one wanted it until someone finally saw the potential and you want to know why a lot of rich people came there in the winter. In the early 1920s, that property was bought by a Miami businessman and real estate developer named Stoltz. He called himself Commodore J. Perry Stoltz. The vision that Stoltz had for the property was building this grand resort hotel, this 16-story hotel that would have 100 hundred to 100-foot matching radio towers at the top. This was, you know, the roaring 20s and the radio age and and uh, that hotel would have been uh, on that property. He also was looking to develop a golf course on the property. And, uh, you know, the house that was there at the, at the time, the old Berkman's house, would then be raised. All right, Michael, so Commodore Stoltz what? had a plan. Just hold on a minute. <laughs> Listen, you do not get to call yourself Commodore. 
I'm sorry. You're not allowed to give yourself a title like that. That's like giving yourself your own nickname. It's not allowed. Thank you, Major Collins. So <laughs> like anything, yeah, is it, <laughs> there you go. I, it I, is. I had no clue. <laughs> so like any vacation or sporting events, everything can be put together so perfectly, which Stoltz thought he was doing. Of course he it's had perfect. the best plan for what he wanted to do with this big plot of land. But, Michael, unfortunately for Commodore Stoltz. See? Gave yourself a name. Karma. The one thing you can't control. Mother Nature. In 1926, uh, there was an enormous hurricane that hit Florida, and it destroyed uh, a property that Stoltz owned, called the Fleetwood Hotel in Miami. And it bankrupted Stoltz, and everything stopped. All right, Michael, so just like that, a storm that was nowhere near Augusta, it was down in Florida, scrapped the plans. Bankrupt, no money, no progress. In fact, the only thing left was the foundation. Those things, they call them footers, right? Footers, correct. And they're still there. In fact, in 1996, when crews were actually doing work on the putting green that's there today, they found those old original footers slash foundation that was installed. That's really cool. Well, we go back to 1926, and you think about the property. Now, this is twice that it's been abandoned. And now the place is a mess because he started doing that hotel thing. So there's excavation work that's been done. I mean, it's just the house is still there, that Berkman's house, but there's no electricity, no heat. It's uninhabitable. Like, it's just, it's it's in wrecks. It's in shambles. And it stays that way for five years, up to 1931. Second time the house has been left in a situation where you can't live in it. So while the house is failing, the property is failing, this Georgia product just can't get things going there is actually one Georgia product that's in a good spot. While all this is going on, Bobby Jones was becoming one of the most famous people in the world. He won the four major tournaments of that day in one year at at the age of 28. He won the Grand Slam, the British Open and Amateur, the U.S. Open and Amateur, all in one year. Nobody had ever done that before, and nobody had done it since. Jones had always talked about his desire to build a great golf course in the South. All right, so imagine this, Michael Collins, a player of Bobby Jones' ability just wins the Grand Slam at 28 years old. You Which would had think, never been done before. You would think he's got 10 years left to go. At least. But no. After winning the Grand Slam, he shuts it down and retires. I will say this. As long as sports has been around, mm-hmm. that there is the ultimate mic drop. There has never been a mic drop like that. So Grand would, Slam, I'm out. Thank you. Peace. I would imagine back in 1930, after said mic drop, People, fans, media, everywhere wondering, what was next for Jones? There were lots of people who idolized uh, Jones. And one of those people was a young man named Clifford Roberts, who had grown up in poverty in a lot of different places, mostly in the Midwest. And Roberts uh, came to New York as a young man and became a stockbroker. And he had a big year, but then he lost everything. Uh, in the crash, along with everybody else. And at one point in the 1920s, he had taken up golf, and he happened to spend some time with Jones after an exhibition that Jones had given uh, just outside New York City. They met over a drink, and Roberts heard Jones talking about this ambition of his to build a great golf course in the South. And Roberts sort of (laughs) uh, took it on uh, in his mind that this was something that they would do. Jones and Roberts were, were both winter tourists in Augusta. When it actually came time to begin thinking about fulfilling this ambition of Jones's, Augusta was a natural place to build this golf course. 
All right, so give Jones and Clifford Roberts credit in 1931. They see this property that's been left and weathered over for the last five years. But they look at it and they're saying, you know what? Make a few adjustments, do a little bit of this, that, and the other. And all of a sudden, this vision pops into their head. We can build a golf course here. And I bet I can see money coming into this thing. So I'm going to go to investors. And you know how much they bought this land for? I'm going to take a wild guess. $75,000? But there's a kicker to that $75,000, though. $60,000 of that was debt that was left over from when Stoltz had the property. So in reality... $15,000 is what they got Augusta National Golf Club for. And the how land much, that would become Augusta National How Golf much Club. did Bobby Jones put into that? Zero. You're talking about Clifford Roberts, who doesn't come from money. Even at that, that's that might be one of the greatest steals. Another one of those nuggets that both of us went, what? We'll get to another one coming up in just a bit. Speaking of numbers and steals with Augusta National Golf Club. But as Owen here explains, when these two bought the land, they knew that there was some work to do. When they bought the property, Dennis Redmond's plantation house, which he'd built from concrete in the 1850s, it was a wreck. It had never been a very large or very elegant house. Uh, it was It's much smaller than it looks like from the outside. And it had really just about fallen apart. It hadn't been occupied for a very long time. It wasn't heated. There was no plumbing. There was no electricity. And Roberts and Jones's plan was to tear it down, which was not necessarily irrational. Fixing its problems would have cost an enormous amount of money, and it wouldn't have been big enough to serve the need that they thought they had for all 1,800 members that they hoped to have for their golf club. So their original plan was to tear down Dennis Redmond's plantation house and build this grand uh, double-winged, huge-column, southern colonial uh, manse to serve as the clubhouse. When Jones and Roberts began, they had grand spectacular plans for the club that they were going to build. There were going to be two golf courses. Uh, there was going to be tennis courts. There was going to be a bridle path for riding horses. One of the golf courses was going to be specifically for women. There was going to be a huge golf complex. The Great Depression got in the way of their plans. Unbelievable. For the second time now, an unforeseen disaster puts a dent in what would eventually become Augusta National Golf Club. Coming up next, we're going to explain how the Great Depression factored into Jones and Roberts' vision of what they wanted Augusta National Golf Club to be. Welcome back to this SC-featured podcast, The Making of a Major. When we left you, we kind of teased how the Great Depression got in the way of what Jones and Roberts had planned. Of course, the stock market crash happened in 1929. Right. They bought the property in 1931. They still had those visions of grandeur. But like everything, it takes time for the total damage to manifest itself, and that's what happened with the Great Depression, because by the time 1931 hit, the U.S. economy was awful. People were losing jobs. Money was tough. And here are Jones and Roberts. Two guys trying to build what is the ultimate luxury, a super golf club with huge clubhouse and all these other amenities. But now no money, so that bridal path for the horses, gone, out of here. The tennis courts, got to go. Don't have money for that now. That second golf course that they were designing that was specifically for women, not going to be able to have that. But that's not the kicker. The kicker is that big beautiful clubhouse that they had talked about designing with the two huge locker rooms not going to be able to do that either 
So they've come to the realization that all of their dreams went with the stock market crash and the Great Depression. So they know they're not going to have their enormous clubhouse. And they're sitting there, and they're like, you know what? What's that, that thing sitting there's, over there's there? There's that old little house Yeah, that was built in the 1850s. It looks horrible. And at this point, Michael, it is, it's fallen apart. It's, oh, a, it's a dump. Still no electricity, still no plumbing, still no heat. It's just sitting there. But, and they, have, but they have no money. This is true. We got to do something. And what do they do? Turn that into the clubhouse, maybe? It's called a fixer-upper. We could just fix that thing up. All right, so, Michael, really an amazing arc in this story. This little house that they've decided to make their clubhouse was supposed to be knocked down by Stoltz for his super hotel. Miami Hurricane, bankrupt, out. Then these two wanted to knock it down for their major clubhouse, Great Depression. House survives. Here we have it. They've got the clubhouse of Augusta National Golf Club. But they now need a designer for the golf course. So they choose famed architect Alistair McKenzie to design their masterpiece. McKenzie at the time, great resume that included Cypress Point and Positiampa, both in Northern California. So, Michael, really at the time, this guy was the perfect choice to design this golf course. Absolutely perfect. And it was actually the last golf course that Alistair McKenzie ever designed because he died in 1934. All right, so let's go through our checklist really quick for what Jones and Roberts are trying to do. Okay. Clubhouse. Check. Golf course designer, golf course. Check. What do you need to get a golf club up and running? Hmm. We might want to have some people, members. That would be, that might be a good idea. Um, as Owen explains, that was a small problem. Roberts assumed that creating a golf club as a tribute to Jones would be easy, that there were so many people who were uh, infatuated uh, with Jones that signing up golfers would be a breeze. It turned out to be very difficult. Their plan was to have 1,800 members. Uh, they hoped to have golfers from all over the world. Dues would be low, and they would get lower. There would be a tribute to Jones and a sort of a sanctuary for people who love golf. The initiation fee that initially was $350. Annual dues were $100. It was not very much money. But what they discovered was that the crash and the depression had uh, greatly reduced the ability of even Jones's most avid fans to spend that kind of money. Augusta was in an out-of-the-way place. You had to travel to get there. Uh, the local population wasn't big enough to support a, a, a winter golf club. And they had to quickly abandon this idea that they were going to have 1,800 members. They sent out thousands of postcards. They hired people uh, to travel around the country looking for members. They acquired lists of members from other golf clubs in the country. Uh, Roberts wrote letters to people he saw in newspapers. He sent a letter to the owner of an inn in New England because he'd seen a picture in a newspaper of golfers standing outside the inn. And uh, the owner wrote back. He said that the, most of the people in that picture were boys home from school, and he doubted that they would be interested in joining a golf club in Georgia. Um, but but they were looking everywhere. Uh, anybody who could come up with $350 would have been welcome as a member of that club. And in, in several years of trying, they managed to sign up just 76 of the 1,800 people that they initially intended to sign up. That is unbelievable. And that's what I was alluding to earlier in the podcast about a number that I'm going to point out that I think is absolutely absurd, <laughs> that you could get an introductory membership at Augusta National for $350. A $100 annual membership fee. That's 450 bucks the first year. I, to think that Augusta National 
wanted that many members. They to were sh- that desperate. Yeah, but the, and they only got seventy six. They're they're writing letters from pictures that they see in newspapers. They're that desperate. But e- even now, to think Augusta National wanted to have that big of a membership, it's it's almost absurd to think of it now. But I mean, you think maybe we could still get a membership for three fifty? I mean, yeah, I'll ask this year when we cover the Masters. Ask for me too. All right. So despite all the drama they had with getting the membership, Augusta National Golf Club officially opened in nineteen thirty three. Alistair McKenzie leaves them this perfectly designed course. Perfect. They decide to flip his design and flip the nines, meaning what we see today, one being the first, 10 being the 10th, they flipped those. Mm-hmm. And then they figured out really quickly that wasn't going to work. Here's Owen. What they discovered fairly early in the mid-1930s was that they could play golf earlier on cold days if they switch the nines back to what Mackenzie's original layout was because the, the lowest, coldest, shadiest parts of the course are down in what we now call Amen Corner, down on the lowest level of the property. Uh, those greens would stay frosty longer than greens on the other side. So if players teed off on what's now number one, uh, by the time they got around to the 10th, 11th, 12th hole, the course would have thawed out. All right, so Michael, being an expert at, at course walking, as you are, being a former caddy on tour, this proved to be a really, really bad idea. Again, Alistair McKenzie knew what he was doing from the get-go. He gave them this design that had it set up ready for that. This is a winter golf course. Amen Corner, lowest part of the golf course, is going to get warmest the latest. And it was a true out-and-in course. Correct. Number one goes away from the clubhouse, and you come back for number nine. And then you go out again on number 10, and you come back for number 18. But number the clubhouse is the highest part of the golf course. And then you kind of go down. It goes a little bit of a slope. And the lowest part of the golf course is Amen Corner. So it's going to get the sun the latest, which means it'll unfreeze the latest. Well, thankfully, Mother Nature did us all a favor and got this thing Thank back to goodness. its original design. Coming up next, we're going to explain how Augusta National Golf Club almost hosted another major that wasn't the Masters. Welcome back to this SC Featured Podcast, the making of a major. When we left you, we announced that Augusta National Golf Club was in fact open 1933. You've got your golf club, you've got your membership, albeit small. Now Jones and Roberts wanted a tournament and jones wanted one in particular jones's ambition from the beginning had been to have a u.s open someplace in the south and to build a course that would be a place where a u.s open could be held when the club in the early days had so much trouble attracting members uh, roberts and jones both felt that it was imperative to get it get that u.s open because it would put the course on the map jones and roberts approached uh, the usga and uh, the tournament chairman of the USGA came to look at the golf course, and he praised it, but holding a U.S. Open at Augusta National would have created enormous difficulties for the USGA at that time. For one thing, they would have had to hold the tournament in the early spring rather than when the U.S. Open was held then. It would have meant changing not only the date of the tournament, but also the dates of all the qualifiers that were held. 
So it was difficult. Uh, the USGA said that they were that they were very interested in this golf course, but they didn't think it was ready yet. And that was another serious issue. The, the golf course had barely grown in. They had just completed it. And so the, the USGA politely declined and said they were interested in the future, but that they weren't going to do it. Thank you, USGA. But, Matt, i got to be honest. Can you imagine U.S. Open rough mm. at Augusta National six to eight inches thick? Combine it with those greens? No thanks. A lot of broken wrists. All right, so Roberts and Jones were not going to let the USGA's decision stop them. Roberts thought that one solution would be to conduct a tournament of their own. And in order to do that, they faced the same challenge that the U.S. Open would have. They needed some reason to attract players and reporters and spectators to come and watch this tournament in this funny place uh, in the spring. And that attraction was Jones. So they need this tournament to get off the ground. And so Roberts is essentially begging Bobby Jones and saying, Bobby, this doesn't get going unless you play in this tournament. But Jones didn't want to play. He's four years out of competition. Can you imagine four years without playing in a golf tournament? I mean, you know what pros say when they haven't played in a golf tournament for three or four months, how rusty. And that's what Jones was saying. He's so rusty four years. He doesn't want to go embarrass himself. And, Michael, you can't really blame him. Hasn't been in competition for four years. He had won the Grand Slam in 1930. This is 1934. He hasn't played. He's going to be rusty. But finally, Roberts, through persistence, convinces him to play, convinces Bobby Jones to play in the debut tournament, and that's how they were promoting this thing. The club was saying, this is the return of Bobby Jones because, Michael, they wouldn't have had anybody covered otherwise. Well, that's the thing. The name Bobby Jones is that important. So to be able to say you're going to get to see Bobby Jones return to golf here at this club, it was important, and it mattered. It did matter. I mean, he didn't come close to winning, but the fact of the matter is in 1934, the first tournament was played. It was billed as the return of the great Bobby Jones, and while it was the first tournament, things didn't go that smoothly. When it started out, it was sort of a let's put on a show kind of amateur neighborhood production. The, the field was small. Roberts had to borrow 66 chairs from two local funeral homes. They had to uh, get some money from the, the city of Augusta to do things like buy grass seed and buy sand. They had to put in a pond. They had to buy rope to put around areas where they didn't want people walking. They had to start completely from scratch. The tournament was called the Augusta National Invitation Tournament. Although it was known to sports writers and players and many people as the Masters right from the start, the club didn't use that name officially because Jones thought it was pretentious to, you know, to say that these are the Masters of golf. I've been asked this numerous times, like, where'd the name the Masters come from? And I didn't know until doing research and doing prep for this podcast that it actually referred to, well, we want to name this tournament after the Masters of golf. Jones wanted nothing to do with it, Michael. And that's kind of funny that it was Bobby Jones, and this tournament was almost an ode to him, and he was the one that fought this name for the longest. Thought it was pretentious. Yeah. So then you have this fight going in 35, 36, 37, and 38. Remember, the first tournament was in 1934. And finally, in 1939, Jones relented to Robert's request, and the tournament in 1939 was officially named the Masters. In the late 1930s uh, and early 1940s, 
the tournament was starting to click, and so was the club. They were they were really on their feet, and then suddenly the United States was at war, and the club shut down for the duration. Jones enlisted. He was too old to do it, but he did. The club closed. Jones had the idea that one way the club could contribute to the war effort would be to raise cattle uh, on the golf course, and so they did. They bought a couple of hundred head of cattle and turned them loose on the golf course to graze on the on the grass. It turned out that the cattle had a taste for azaleas. When the war ended, Roberts began looking into not only putting the golf course back in shape, but also to reviving the Masters. The last Masters had been in 1942. The next was in 1946. And there was a lot to do. They had to find, Roberts said, they had to find all the old scoreboards. They had to find the rope and the signs and all the all the, the infrastructure of the tournaments, which they did. The club went, cut the grass. The club got back into operation. And the club had the benefit of the same economic boom that the country did following the war. When the war ended, the United States entered one of the great economic booms in its history, and Augusta National gained from that as well. It still wasn't club that people picture or the tournament that people picture today. Robert still believed that at any moment something could go terribly wrong and the whole thing would disappear. So there were there was still this enormous effort to make everything as perfect as they could possibly make it. Matt, that attention to detail that Clifford Roberts was so infamous for, you can still see that in the golf course and in the tournament today. There is never a blade of grass out of place. There's You never see pine cones nope. laying on the ground. You never see pine straw out of the beds that are around the Georgia pines that are there on the golf course. It is kept so immaculate. It, it's almost scary to think how megalomaniacs a strong word. <laughs> But when you think about it, you have to be over the top for as perfect as this place wants to be, and they are. They're over the top. But that's what makes it so great. Yeah. In 1934, you got a, you got a glimpse of what Roberts was like mentally, and we still see that today. And because of how he was in 1934, we see it to this day, which will be 2017 when we arrive at the Masters in April. But not only did he have a big attention to detail, did Roberts, he was also a visionary. When the war ended, one of the first thoughts that Roberts had was that maybe television would be interested in a golf tournament. The Masters was actually the first golf tournament that was covered on nationwide radio. And Roberts was thinking ahead. It was actually he was a decade ahead at the end of the war in terms of television coverage. But in 1956, it happened. The tournament was covered on television for the first time. NBC actually had the television rights, but they weren't interested in covering the tournament. And so they dropped their option, and CBS immediately took it up. All right, so CBS didn't waste any time snatching that up. But I want to ask you, bigger mistake, not buying a $350 introductory membership to Augusta National or NBC saying, you know what, we'll pass. Personally, the $350 membership. What about the NBC suits at 30 Rock? I was going to say that would be 1A because they now every year have to see that tournament on CBS and somebody slamming a door somewhere and using language we can't use on this podcast talking about what they have missed out on. They decided to pass. So here we are on our evolution of the story. The first television broadcast of the Masters was in 1956. Now, at the time, there was this golfer mm. that was made for TV. He was perfect for TV. He played in his first Masters in 1955. He won his first Masters in 1958. He had an army. His name was Arnie. 
Think about the just the clothes that he Movie wore. Movie star looks. Yes. Cardigan sweaters. Yes. Slick back hair. Had a heater. Oh, just lighting up a heater. Yeah, and I that was back in the day where Arnie was he was a little buff. Yeah. He wore those polos that was kind of like mediums. Yeah, Forever the King. Yes. I mean, Arnold Palmer, he's going to be missed this year at the Masters, but he was made for TV as the Masters was in 1956. But they started to attract other high-profile people, including a certain five-star general in World War II. He was, without question, a war hero. Mm. And we're talking about Dwight D. Eisenhower. Eisenhower was uh, an avid golfer. And when the Second World War ended, he had time to play golf. He became a member of Augusta National in 1948, and he visited as a as a guest, and then they made him a member. And for Eisenhower, the club was the same kind of sanctuary that it had been for Jones. He and his wife had lived a military life. They'd lived in something like 30 different places over 30 years. And now that the war was over, that his military career was over, there was a chance to settle down someplace. You know, the members at Augusta National also were really the first close friends that he'd had in his adult life, and they were important to him once he became president as well. All right, so Ike, he had alluded to it there, did Owen about him becoming president of the United States. Ike would win the presidential election in 1952. And although he was now the president of the United States of America, Michael, that wasn't going to stop him from playing around at Augusta. He's a member of Augusta National. Doesn't matter what your title is. When you got a chance to go play some golf, you got to go play some golf. Yeah, but things were different when he teed it up there. True. He did play there while he was president, accompanied by Secret Service agents who carried golf bags that concealed Thompson submachine guns. The Eisenhower cabin was built uh, for Eisenhower. If you walk past it today, you'll see that there are dormers in the roof, and those were put there for Secret Service sharpshooters who could keep an eye on the president when he was in residence. A little background story for those who have never been to Augusta National about what they were talking about, about the Eisenhower cabin. When you go on the grounds there... There are cabins everywhere for the membership. Yeah, when you first walk into the gates, there are cabins on the right-hand side. And then up by the clubhouse, going down the 10th hole, there's also cabins there. Members, when they come to Augusta to play, they will oftentimes stay in those cabins. And they're scattered throughout. But Eisenhower had one named just for him Yeah, and, he and had, built for him. And Eisenhower had memories all over that course. Remember the famous Eisenhower tree that, that froze during a freak down. ice storm? Yeah, it's... Just three years ago, 2014, but why did he want it cut down? Because he couldn't hit his tee shot over <laughs> that tree, and all he did was hit that tree every time he teed it up. I'm a five-star general and president of the United States. Cut down the tree. Membership. I'm sorry, sir. You're only a member here at Augusta National. The tree stays. Pass. <laughs> so Ike wins the presidential election in 1952. We've taken you through the 50s. Now we're about to enter the golden age. During the 60s and 70s, Palmer Nicholson player each winning multiple Masters. We know that is the big three tee shot that because we lost the King last year, we won't get this year at the Masters. But this is really when the golden era of this tournament starts to take shape. Nicholas, Palmer, Gary Player, that is the golden age of golf. And, and it definitely had an effect on the golf club. But, Michael, as we move into the 80s, there was a rule change that affected the club and the players. In the early years of professional golf, players didn't travel with caddies. It was, I mean, there, was, there wasn't enough money in it for the players, uh, much less to, you know, to travel around with caddies. At most tournaments, players were not allowed to bring caddies from other places. That was true at Augusta, too. In the late 70s, in the early 80s, players had begun to use the same caddies from tournament to tournament. The Masters was one of the last tournaments where that didn't happen. And the reason that 
the club hung on to it so long was that it was economically important to people who lived in Augusta to be able to work that tournament. Matt, we started off this podcast talking about how booming Augusta was in the 20s, and it was a place where all the movers and shakers and big money from up north would come during the winter and even people from the south. So there was lots of money in the community, but that was the 20s. In the 80s, the community's not quite like that. So the economic impact that was had for this community because of the caddies working that week and working the tournament, Mm -hmm. it really made a difference and mattered. And that was one of the things that might have gotten lost a little bit when people think, oh, you just players want to have their own caddies with them. But this is one of the things where Clifford Roberts really understood what was going on economically and how it impacted not only Augusta National, but the community around Augusta. These guys counted on this job year in and year out, really a tipping point in the history of the Masters and Augusta National Golf Club. And to that point, Michael, here are a pair of caddies that were affected by this decision in 1983. It made you feel bad, but there was nothing you could do about it. I was hurt. You know what I mean? God, that's all I've been, I've been doing it for so long. And the time come in the, in the April, I say, wow, I'm not in the Masters this year. What am I going to do? I was told I was hurt. And I said, well, I'll get over it, you know. Those two caddies, Michael Jariah Beard and Tommy Bennett, both of them emotional and honest with what that decision meant. Tommy Bennett, someone who I caddied with for a few years on the PGA Tour and have known for a long time, and hearing how emotional that they get about what it meant, it's one of those things where it gets it's easily lost the impact that PGA Tour professionals and tour pros bringing their own caddies with them, it gets lost, the impact that that had on that community. And you talk about that one change, just that one change. That was in 1983 and how many people it affected. But if you move into the 90s, the change they made in 1990, that was huge. That was huge, and Augusta National is known for doing everything at a glacial pace. They will not be forced into change by anything whatsoever. But having their first African-American member in 1990 was one of the changes that Augusta National made extremely quick because of what happened at Shoal Creek. Explain to people what that is. Well, Shoal Creek was a golf course that didn't have any african-american members and they were supposed to have the pga championship and the pga of america came in and said we will no longer hold championships at golf courses that don't have a diverse membership specifically if you don't have any african-american members we can't allow our championship to be played there and there were some golf courses that just decided well you know what we're not going to have a championship here anymore But Augusta National kind of saw the writing on the wall and decided relatively quickly, listen, if we're going to be an organization that grows the game, we need to grow the game to everyone. Also pointing out changes that Augusta National Golf Club made, 2012, the first female member admitted. And so Augusta National has gone through all these changes from the 1800s until we sit here today, but the end result is the course that we know and see every first week in April with the Masters Tournament. So that's been the history of Augusta National Golf Club. We've tried to do our best to get you in and out of the big points throughout its history. Michael, I'll ask you as I do at the end of every podcast, give me your cliff note. What did you learn? This podcast was nothing but learning. Just, I, I completely believe in karma. 
think about everything that had to happen in the chronological order that it did happen yep. in order for this club to become this club. The Fruitland <laughs> had to not work. Commodore, the a hurricane in, in yeah. Miami. That's All of those things had to happen the way that they happened for this club to be on this piece of property. The Great Depression is why we have the clubhouse we know and see today that's so historical for me. You learn so much, even about how the master's name came about or how you can buy an initial membership for $350. That still hurts you, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> it's been a learning lesson for us. We hope we've done the same for you. For Michael Collins, I'm Matt Barry. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this SC Featured Podcast. Subscribe and listen to every episode of the SC Featured Podcast by clicking on the Listen tab of the ESPN app.